Hello, this is Chris Date, and you are listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, Episode 5, Godman. of this episode is the historic Christian teaching that Christ is God in human flesh, with particular respect to challenges leveled against it by the Jehovah's Witnesses who don't hold to that view. And we'll get into all of that in a minute, but as per usual, I have some housekeeping to do regarding the previous episode. First, there were a couple of mistakes that I made, and I made them several times. I spoke of the Sumerians in Acts chapter 8 instead of what I think is the proper word for them, which is Samaritans. Um, Just think of the Good Samaritan, for example. And second of all, I referred to the Gentile God-fearers in Acts chapter 8 as being Gentiles who had converted, sorry, Acts chapter 10, as being Gentiles who had fully converted to Judaism. But that's not really accurate. Gentiles who had fully converted to Judaism were called proselytes. And we can look at Acts chapter 6, for example, where uh, a Gentile proselyte named Nicholas is included with a group of Jewish believers who are brought before the apostles to serve the uh, hungry widows of the congregation. Um, the the God-fearers, on the other hand, were not completely converted to Judaism, but they did adopt some of Jewish belief and practice uh, to varying degrees. So, you know, maybe it's a minor mistake, but, you know, I, I wanted to point it out. Also, after publishing that episode, I met with my friend personally, face-to-face, to continue our debate about uh, the importance of water baptism. And I'm pleased to say I think that we made some progress. Uh, if I understood my friend correctly, by the time we were done discussing it, he agreed that baptism in the Holy Spirit is the same thing as the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that even we Christians today experience that. However, he does still view water baptism as being the point at which that happens, uh, so that debate is ongoing, and he brought up an interesting uh, issue, which is that of the laying on of hands. This is a biblical topic I'm not very familiar with, so I'll be researching this, and and it'll be the subject of a future episode, but I'm going to let a few episodes go by first, because I don't want every single episode to be about uh, (laughs) this, this debate that my friend and I are having. So, if you are interested in this discussion... Uh, look forward to it being continued in the future, and until then, I hope that you'll enjoy the episodes I have for you in the meantime. Finally, in my second episode, I played a promo for a podcast I enjoy that at the time was called the Theology Today Podcast. Well, that podcast has undergone a name change, and I won't explain why. You can go to my friend Phil's blog and podcast for that information. But what I would like to do is play the updated promo that he's provided me so that you know that it's its new name, and you'll have the URL to both his blog and his podcast. And I recommend both. Phil's a great guy. I think the topics that he addresses are important ones, and I think that you'll enjoy it. Hi, this is Phil Nasons from the blog and the podcast, What Color is the Sky in Their World? Formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us. 
from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. So with all that out of the way, let's move into the topic of this episode. Many Christians take for granted what the church has taught since its beginning concerning the nature of our Savior Jesus Christ, that he is the theanthropus, a Greek word meaning God-man. We struggle to comprehend that which can't be comprehended, that, uh, that we worship one God in three persons, the Holy Trinity. Indeed, we struggle to even communicate what that means. But nevertheless, we accept what we're taught and we worship Jesus as God himself, rightfully. The topic of the Trinity, in a broader sense, will be the topic of future episodes, but the study of Jesus' divinity is by itself an enormous endeavor. And I want to discuss him first before discussing his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, because we often take this for granted, we might be surprised to discover that some who profess to follow Jesus Christ deny this essential of the Christian faith. Among them are the Jehovah's Witnesses who teach instead that Jesus is a created being, indeed the first created being, Michael the Archangel, who subsequently created everything else. Many an unwitting Christian, ill-prepared to defend the divinity of Christ, has found himself unable to provide an answer to the Jehovah's Witness at his door. Some, having a vague familiarity with this counterfeit form of Christianity, being unable to give an answer will kindly turn the so-called witness away and continue to believe, correctly, that Jesus is God. The Jehovah's Witness, however, will leave feeling bolstered in his false faith, interpreting the Christian's inability to answer his challenges as evidence that Jesus is not, in fact, God. Other Christians, however, will find themselves so challenged by the witness at the door that they are shaken in their faith and, potentially, drawn into heresy. So, it's vitally important that we vigorously study this topic and become intimately familiar, uh, familiar with what the Scripture says about it. First, so that we can communicate to other Christians the biblical truth and protecting them from being led away by the Jehovah's Witnesses or a host of other false faiths. But second, so that we can give an answer, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, or give a defense, hoping that God will use our sound defense to open the false witness's mind to the truth. Now, if you have any doubt that this teaching is essential to the Christian faith, you can look at the creeds affirmed in the 4th and later centuries. For example, the creed affirmed at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 says, We believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And this creed was reaffirmed in the year 381 at Constantinople. And in the Athanasian Creed, which comes sometime later, it says, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. Such as the Father is, such as the Son. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal. The Father is almighty, the Son almighty. These creeds from the 4th century and later were by no means communicating something new. The language of the Trinity might not have been so well developed until then, but despite claims to the contrary by the Jehovah's Witnesses, which we'll examine shortly, the earliest church fathers taught, as scripture teaches, that Jesus is God in human flesh. To demonstrate this, I'm going to rely heavily upon a book I highly recommend 
called The Trinity, Evidence and Issues by Robert Morey. It's a huge tome of information, and I'll be quoting from it in future episodes, but for now, I'm going to read selected portions of chapter 20 entitled The Early Church. Clement of Rome, whom I've cited in previous episodes, writing in the first century is quoted by Basil a couple hundred years later as saying, As God liveth, and Jesus Christ liveth, and the Holy Spirit liveth, who are the faith and the hope of the elect. The discovery of the Constantinople and Syriac versions of Clement prove that Basil's quote is accurate. Clement, then, followed the Old Testament pattern when appealing to God. The phrase, as Yahweh lives, appears 35 times in the Old Testament, such as Hosea 4.15, and the phrase, as God lives, appears twice more. Clement's language, then, points clearly to Jesus' divinity. In the so-called Second Epistle of Clement, a work attributed by some to this same Clement, uh, perhaps erroneously, but definitely written in the same period of time, reads, My brethren, we must look on Christ as God. And, for when they hear from us that God said, It is no thanks unto you if you love them that love you, but this is thanks unto you if you love your enemies uh, and them that hate you. Since Jesus is the author of the words quoted, see Luke six thirty-two to 35 he is the God who said them, according to Clement. Ignatius of Antioch, also writing in the first century, wrote in his uh, letter to the Ephesians, By the will of the Father and of Jesus Christ our God. In, he also speaks of the blood of God, and he says, There is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God in man, true life in death, son of Mary and son of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes on to say, He himself may be in us as our God, and the knowledge of God, which is Jesus Christ. And he says, For our God, Jesus Christ, was once conceived in the womb by Mary, according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. And he goes on to speak of, When God appeared in the likeness of man, unto newness of everlasting life. He just as explicitly teaches that Jesus is God in his letter to the Romans. He says, By faith and love towards Jesus Christ our God, and again refers to Jesus Christ our God, and later refers to our God Jesus Christ. And he says, in his letter to the Trallians, if ye be inseparable from our God Jesus Christ. And in his letter to the Smyrnaeans, he says, I give glory to Jesus Christ, the God who bestowed such wisdom upon you. And in his letter to Polycarp, he wrote, Await him that is above every season, the eternal, the invisible, who became visible for our sake, the impalpable, the impassable, who suffered for our sake, who endured it in all ways for our sake. And then he closes by saying, I bid you farewell always in our God, Jesus Christ. This was just a small sampling of the historical evidence presented in the book, so I definitely encourage you to get a copy for yourself. But these citations alone from Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch prove that the earliest church fathers did in fact teach that Jesus is God. Completely ignoring them, however, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that the early church fathers prior to Nicaea in the 4th century did not teach that Jesus is God. At my blog, I've examined many of the claims made in a work published by the Jehovah's Witnesses called Should You Believe in the Trinity, including this one concerning the early church. With no mention of Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, it begins with a church father from the 2nd century saying, Justin Martyr, who died about 165 CE, called the pre-human Jesus a created angel who is other than the God who made all things. He said that Jesus was inferior to God and never did anything except what the Creator willed him to do and say. Now, this is, in fact, 
an outright lie. In his dialogue with Trypho, Justin Martyr writes, And that Christ being Lord, and God the Son of God, and appearing formerly in power as man and angel, and in the glory of fire as at the bush, so also was manifested at the judgment executed on Sodom, has been demonstrated fully by what has been said. Now, note that Justin Martyr calls Jesus God the Son of God. And he did not call Jesus a created angel, he said he appeared as an angel. And he points to the burning bush in Exodus, which, as I'll explain in a future episode, is actually powerful evidence that Jesus is God. Having lied about Justin Martyr, this brochure from the Jehovah's Witnesses continues. It says, Irenaeus, who died about 200 CE, said that the pre-human Jesus had a separate existence from God and was inferior to him. He showed that Jesus is not equal to the one true and only God, who is supreme over all and besides whom there is no other. Yet again, this is just a lie. In his The Proof of the Apostol, uh, wow, I butchered that. In his The Proof of the Apostolic Preaching, Irenaeus writes, So then the Father is Lord, and the Son is Lord, and the Father is God, and the Son is God, for that which is begotten of God is God. And so in the substance and power of his being there is shown forth one God, but there is also according to the economy of our redemption both Son and Father. And he goes on to say, For the Son, as being God, receives from the Father, that is, from God, the throne of the everlasting kingdom and the oil of anointing above his fellows. So, like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus said of Jesus, the Son is God. And the lying doesn't end there. The publication continues saying, Clement of Alexandria, who died about 215 CE, called Jesus in his pre-human existence a creature, but called God the uncreated and imperishable and only true God. He said that the Son is next to the only omnipotent Father, but not equal to him. This is yet another lie, for in his exhortation to the heathen, Clement wrote, For it was not without divine care that so great a work was accomplished in so brief a space by the Lord, who, though despised as to appearance, was in reality adored the expiator of sin, the Savior, the Clement, the divine word, he that is truly most manifest deity, he that is made equal to the Lord of the universe. Here Clement calls Jesus truly most manifest deity and equal to the Lord of the universe. In the Pedagogus, or the instructor, Clement wrote, Now, O you, my children, our instructor is like his father God, whose son he is, sinless, blameless, and with a soul devoid of passion, God in the form of man, stainless, the minister of his father's will, the word who is God, who is in the father, who is at the father's right hand, and with the form of God is God. Again, Clement calls Jesus God in the form of man, saying he is God. The brochure goes on to lie about Tertullian and Hippolytus and Origen, all from the 3rd century. And if you want to read about that, you can check out my blog. I'll include a link to that particular post where I, where I refute those lies in my show notes. But as we've clearly seen from Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch in the 1st century, as well as from Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the 2nd, and from Clement of Alexandria in the 3rd, the Church Fathers, immediately following the New Testament Church and stretching indefinitely into the future, all taught that Jesus Christ is God himself. Now, as I've said in previous episodes, and as I'll continue to say in many episodes to come, uh, this doesn't prove that the Church Fathers were right. The, in other words, the fact that the Church was unified uh, from the very beginning, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, does not prove that Jesus is, in fact, God. 
So the question that we need to ask, as we've asked in previous episodes, is whose view does Scripture support? Does it support this view taught by the early church fathers, codified in the creeds in the 4th and later centuries, uh, and taught in Christian churches today? Or does it support the Jehovah's Witness view and a view shared by some other false versions of Christianity that Jesus is somebody other than God? Well, there's a ton of biblical evidence, in fact, that Jesus is God. And if I tried to include it all in this one episode, it would go on for hours. So over the life of this podcast, in future episodes which deal with this and related topics, I'll present further evidence. But for now, we'll look at a few powerful passages in Scripture and then address many of the biblical challenges the Jehovah's Witnesses level at this teaching. We'll start with what is arguably the text most often cited in this debate, which is the case for good reason. The first three verses of John's Gospel read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. He goes on in verse 14 to identify this Word. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says from the beginning, Jesus was with God and that Jesus was God. And he says that everything that has been created was created through him. The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, Witnesses distort this passage in their poor translation of the scriptures, rendering the first verse, the word was a God. But there's no warrant for doing so, and we might dive into that in, uh, in the future. Now, some will quibble over John's use of the word through when he writes that all things came into being through Jesus. They argue that this means that God used Jesus to create everything else. But John's words are emphatically clear. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So if Jesus were a created being, then this verse would be false, for he would have come into being apart from himself. But, you know, in reality, this issue of the word through is moot, because Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for by, him, uh, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul again uses the word through, But he also uses the words by and for. He says all things were created by him, through him, and for him, that he is before them all, and that they all hold together in him. The author of the book of Hebrews confirms this when in the first chapter he says that God has spoken to us in his Son, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Of the Son, God says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Beyond just confirming that Jesus is the Creator, the author of Hebrews, uh, by quoting Psalm 102, attributes a quality exhibited only by God to Jesus. Namely, his eternal and unchanging nature, saying, The works of your hands will perish, but you remain. They will be changed, but you are the same. But arguably even more powerful, 
The author quotes the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew text compiled by Jewish translators uh, before the time of Christ. He includes the address, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. In the Hebrew text, the psalmist's uh, words are directed toward Yahweh, the name of God rendered Lord in all caps by many modern translations, uh, also said to be Jehovah by um, the Jehovah's Witnesses among some other people. And in the Septuagint, the translators make it clear that these words quoted by the author of Hebrews were directed to Yahweh. In the author's mind, then, this uh, Jesus is Yahweh himself. There are some who claim that in the Septuagint these words aren't in fact directed to God, but that claim is false. I don't want to take up too much time in this episode, but if you want to read about it, I'll include a link in my show notes to a posting at my blog where I demolish that claim. In John twenty twenty-eight, after touching the resurrected Christ's wounds, Thomas says to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Those who deny that Jesus is God will argue that Thomas is merely exclaiming, Oh my God, in surprise at what he's just felt. But this claim is really just silly. For one, the Jews didn't go around saying, Oh my God, when surprised like we do today. More importantly, though, John records that Thomas directed these words unto him, to Jesus himself. He wasn't merely shouting into the air. He was calling Jesus, My Lord and my God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. What Paul just said is profound. God purchased the church with his own blood. And clearly this is a reference to Jesus, and Paul here calls him God. In Romans 9, 5, Paul writes, The Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. On the surface, this, mass, uh, this passage might seem irrelevant because the phrase God blessed forever might be taken to mean blessed, uh, blessed by God forever. However, earlier in his letter, Paul shows us what God blessed forever means. Uh, he writes in chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Blessed forever is not a phrase Paul is using to refer to one blessed by God. Rather, it's a phrase he's using to say God himself is blessed forever. And in conjunction with the word amen, it is a statement of worship and praise. So, the Christ according to the flesh, according to Paul, is God himself blessed forever. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians 1.12, the New Living Translation renders Paul as saying, Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Other translations render the phrase as, The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, giving the impression that Paul is referring first to God and then second to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have time to explain this fully, so you'll have to do the research for yourself, but the grammar of the original Greek text is very clear, and the New Living Translation rightfully renders Paul as saying, Our God and Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And Peter refers to him in the same way, when in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he writes, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just don't think that there's any way Paul and Peter could have made this any clearer. Now, the passages that we've looked at 
are just some of the many biblical evidences that Jesus is God, and we'll look at more of them in the future. For now, I think these suffice to demonstrate clearly the reality that Jesus Christ is God himself in human flesh. Despite that, however, the Jehovah's Witnesses challenge this clear biblical teaching in a number of ways, and we're going to look at some of them now. The Jehovah's Witness at the Christian's door, if pressed to defend the position that Jesus is not God, but is instead his first creation, might start with Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which reads, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The argument is stated this way in their publication, What Does the Bible Really Teach? It says, Jesus is Jehovah's most precious son, and for good reason, he is called the firstborn of all creation, for he was God's first creation. You see, the dictionary defines firstborn as first in the order of birth or eldest. The argument, then, is that in saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, Paul is asserting that of everything God created, Jesus was the first. But if we look at it closer, one, we discover that the idea of firstborn in Hebrew thought conveys preeminence uh, more than it does birth order. In Psalm 89, verse 27, the Lord says of David, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. How can David be a firstborn? He was, after all, the eighth and youngest of his father's sons. You see, when God said he would make David his firstborn, it meant he would assign him preeminence, importance, greatness. We see this again in the blessing conferred upon Joseph's sons by his dying father in Genesis chapter 48, verses 17 and 19, when Joseph objects because his father blesses Joseph's secondborn with a blessing that his firstborn should have received. In Hebrew thought, being born first meant that one had a special, greater level of importance than that of one's siblings. The firstborn's birthright was greater than that of all of his siblings. Thus, Joseph objected to his father's blessing because, despite Manasseh's having been born first, Israel was assigning preeminence to Ephraim, uh, Ephraim, Joseph's secondborn, saying the second would be greater than the first. In the same way, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul is not saying that Jesus is the first created. He's saying that Christ is preeminent. And the NIV more properly renders verse 15, the firstborn over all creation or as the New Living Translation puts it, supreme over all creation. Upon refuting that argument, uh, that Jesus, having been called the firstborn of all creation, means he was the first being God created, the Christian may be asked by the Jehovah's Witness at the door to turn to John 3.16, which reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. As the publication I mentioned earlier puts it, there is something else that makes this son special. He is the only begotten son. This means that Jesus is the only one directly created by God. Now this argument relies upon a misleading translation of the original Greek word here rendered only begotten. The witness will claim that only begotten means only one born to, but that's not really what the word means. The word monogenes means single of its kind, only. It conveys primarily uniqueness not someone's status as having been procreated. Consider Hebrews 11.17, where the same word is used of Isaac when we're told Abraham was offering up his only begotten son. Now, Isaac was not the only son born to Abraham, not even at the time that Abraham was offering him up. Isaac was born second to Abraham years after Ishmael. Since the author of Hebrews applies the word monogenes to Isaac, it simply cannot mean only one born to. Instead, the word monogenes is a combination of two Greek words, the first meaning only and the second meaning of a kind. 
It means one of a kind, unique, special. God promised that it would be Isaac, the younger, with whom God would establish his covenant. While not the only one born to Abraham, Isaac was most certainly unique among his father's sons. In the same way, then, Jesus is not the Father's only begotten Son in the sense that he was created by God. Rather, Jesus is one of a kind. No created being, neither angels nor humans nor any other creature, can be called God's Son in the way he can. Unmoved, the witness might next point to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, in which Jesus calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Before we look more closely at this word, beginning, it should be pointed out that Revelation actually serves as powerful proof that Jesus is God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, John writes, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In chapter 21, verse 6, God again says, I am the Alpha and the, and the Omega. But in Revelation 22, 13, the one who sent the angel speaking to John likewise says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And in verse 16, that angel quotes the one who sent him as saying, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. So Jesus is, in fact, the Almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega. By calling the Christian's attention, then, to Jesus being called the beginning in the book of Revelation, the Jehovah's Witness shoots himself in the foot. Furthermore, the word beginning is applied to God, too, in these Alpha and Omega passages that we've just looked at. If Jesus is being called the beginning means that he was the first that God created, then God's calling himself the beginning must also mean the same thing, and that's of course something that the witness will be unwilling to concede, and rightfully so. So what does it mean that God, indeed Jesus, is the beginning of the creation of God? The Greek word arche can mean the first in a series, but it can also mean the beginner or origin. Other passages we've looked at show that Jesus created all that was created, so this would certainly hold true of him. But it also communicates preeminence or rulership, authority. In Luke chapter 20, verse 20, the word is used to refer to the power or rule of the governor. Thus, the New International Version renders Revelation 3.14 correctly when it says of Jesus that he is the ruler of God's creation. He's not the first that God created. One final attempt that the Jehovah's Witness might make to demonstrate that Jesus was created is to point to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, which in their warped translation of the Bible reads, Jehovah himself produced me as the beginning of his way, the earliest of his achievements of long ago. They'll claim that the word wisdom is a name or title for Jesus, pointing to passages like 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30 and Matthew eleven nineteen. Many legitimate translations of this passage in Proverbs use the word possessed rather than produced, and that might be enough for some to dismiss this argument. However, the New, Test the New International Version renders it, brought me forth as the first of his works, and the New Living Translation reads, formed me from the beginning. This Hebrew word kana is usually used to refer to acquiring something, and in some cases is used to refer to producing or forming something. And in the next verse, the Hebrew word nasach is used to say wisdom was established or set up from everlasting. And in the verses after that, the word hul is used to say wisdom was brought forth before there were springs or mountains. So it is probably legitimate to read verse 22 as saying wisdom was formed or brought forth or something like that. But there are two reasons why this argument simply fails to suggest that Christ was created by God. First, as ought to be clear to anybody who professes faith in the God of the Bible, God was wise before he created anything. 
To suggest that God created wisdom is to suggest that before he did so, he lacked wisdom, that he was unwise, and that's just absurd. A better way to understand this text is that God exercised wisdom in creating all things, that God's wisdom was brought forth in the sense that it was displayed openly at the creation of the universe. As the authors of the book I recommended put it, it is the public display or manifestation of divine wisdom as seen in the act of creation that is in view. If, as the Jehovah's Witnesses insist, this personification of wisdom is a reference to Jesus Christ, then it actually supports the view that he is eternal with God, since wisdom itself is an attribute God has clearly always possessed. But in reality, there is simply no good reason to think Jesus is in view here. Here wisdom is pictured as a woman, saying in verses 1 through 3, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. In Proverbs 9, she is contrasted with a woman personifying folly. Now, nowhere in the scriptures is the Messiah ever depicted as a woman, and the Jewish theologians never understood this passage to be a messianic one. That Jesus is called God's wisdom in the New Testament does not warrant reading that back into this passage. So there's really no good reason to view this passage, this uh, speaking of wisdom being produced at the beginning of God's ways, as pointing to Jesus at all in the first place. So all the attempts made by the Jehovah's Witnesses to demonstrate from the Bible that God created Jesus fail. And once the Christian has demonstrated that, the witness might point him to a couple of passages which might suggest that God is superior to Jesus, and thus that Jesus is not God. In John uh, chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If God the Father is greater than the Son, then the Son cannot be God, or so the argument goes. But it fails to take into account the different kinds of superiority one may have over another. One person may be greater than another in terms of position or authority, yet be equal when it comes to nature or quality. My manager, for example, is in a position of greater authority than I am, but he's no greater in quality or nature. Similarly, and we'll expand on this in future episodes discussing the Trinity, Scripture teaches that the interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son is one in which the Father has a greater position of authority than the Son does. In the same way uh, that a man is in a position of authority over his Son, and yet is equal in nature. Next, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. If God is the head of Christ, this argument goes, then Christ is less than or inferior to God. But this argument fails for the same reason as a previous one. It fails to consider that a difference in authority does not imply a difference in nature. A woman's husband is to a certain degree in a position of authority over her, as head of their family. But a greater position of authority does not necessarily equate to a greater nature, as clearly a woman is not inferior to a man. And just as a husband is not superior to his wife, over whom he has a certain degree of authority, God the Father is in a position of authority over the Son, despite being of the same nature. But what about Paul's seeming contrast between God and Christ? It would have been one thing had Paul said, the Father is the head of Christ. But instead he said, God is the head of Christ. Doesn't this suggest that Christ is not the God with whom he's being contrasted? I don't think so. God is a common reference to God the Father, and is less frequently used to refer to Christ, so it's perfectly legitimate to use the word to refer to the Father in contrasting him with the Son. 
And as we've seen, there are many passages we've looked at today, and, and there will be many that we'll look at in the future, which not only prove that Jesus is God, but in which the authors called him God. So saying God is the head of Christ can't be assumed to be saying that Christ is not God. So the Jehovah's Witnesses' challenges to the historic Christian faith just don't hold up under scrutiny. There are other challenges leveled against the Trinity more generally, rather than specifically the divinity of Jesus, and we'll look at those when I address the Trinity in greater depth. But as we've seen thus far, the scripture clearly teaches that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is God Almighty, creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, who wrapped himself in human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died an agonizing death on the cross, just so that we might be forgiven of our sins and spend eternity with him. Earlier I claimed that this was an essential tenet of the Christian faith, and if you doubted me then, do you doubt me still? Can we be said to be even beginning to properly worship the eternal God in spirit and in truth if we treat him merely as a man or an angel? Can we honestly think we're born again children of the God who suffered on the cross on our behalf if we deny that it was in fact he who did so? Aren't we spitting in the face of the Lord who provided such a humble and selfless yet great and glorious salvation for us if we chalk it up to the work of an angel? The answers to those questions seem obvious to me, and as narrow-minded and as exclusive as I might come across as being, I unite with those who affirmed the Athanasian Creed in saying, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the essence of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the, es the essence of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by assumption of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of essence, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, he sitteth on the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies, and shall give account for their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the universal faith, which except a man believe truly and firmly, he cannot be saved. I thank God for what he's done for me on the cross, and I encourage you to do the same, and to equip yourself to share this glorious faith with those who are as of yet blind. I hope my meager podcast and blog will help you to do so, and I welcome you to email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com if you remain skeptical or if you are facing a challenge to the divinity of Jesus and would like some help defending it. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next installment of the Theapologetics podcast. In the name of the glorious Theanthropus, the God-man, God bless you, my beloved.